Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I still love that music. Hey, everybody. It's Wednesday <laughs> night on Texas Football Wednesday night live stream. I'm your host. Every Wednesday, Ray Peters is my name. And look, at, we got C.J. Vogel back again and lifetime Longhorn Rod Babers there. C.J. talks about Longhorn recruiting and what's going on with the team. And Rod just talks about football. This man loves his football. UT boy says he's here. There's Coachy Samuel talking about softball. But we're here to talk about Texas football as always. And we've got 11 Longhorns headed to Indianapolis for the NFL Combine. Starts in just about a week from now. And I know Rod's been, uh, I told you this guy loves football. He's already been looking at the mock drafts and the like, uh, digging deep into those things and seeing how our Longhorns are rated. And Lance Zerline, who works here in the state, has always got an opinion on things along those lines for NFL.com. Rod, you've been uh, looking at some information that Lance put out, and uh, he's got some Longhorns listed here. And let's take a look at how he thinks they're going to uh, be uh, ranked or what they can uh, perspective happen to them as they come up uh, and get picked uh, in April. Yeah, and Lance Zerline goes into a lot of detail. That's why I like his stuff. I mean, he ranks all the prospects. He goes into detail, ranking them by uh, position. He's got his own score. And I don't really know his methodology. I don't think he's revealed what his methodology is, but he does reveal the score, and he does tell you what the score projects for certain players. Thank you, Matthew. Matthew just pulled it up there. That's So you'll see the score next to the player, and this is what his kind of projections are. For those players based on those scores, Longhorns got 11 prospects going to the NFL Combine. I believe he ended up ranking at 10 of them, um, you know, I mean, by position and overall by their scores. Uh, and, yeah, there it is poured up. And Byron Murphy, of course, he's been the top guy on everybody's board. Uh, you know, uh, you were on that call, CJ, of Matt Miller. And Matt, Matt Miller said the same thing, that he kept falling in love with Byron Murphy the more film he watched. That seems to be the case. That's why he's shooting up everybody's mock draft is because, you know, you watch more film on him and he's the best pass rushing interior defensive lineman in college football. And you go start looking at, you know, the, his his ability to also be a run stuffer. He's also kind of top five as a run stuffer. Uh, he's legit. And he's just say, you know, obviously just a junior. So he's just an underclassman as well. So the upside's really high. Um, you see his 6.48. So for that, that basically – he projects to be a good NFL starter for Lance Erline. That's what he puts him at. A you know kind of a guy that could, and I think he has a, even a higher ceiling than that. But that's what he projects as. He's got Tavondre Sweat as the second highest rated prospect uh, uh, for Texas coming out. You know, a lot of people have you know Ad Mitchell as a higher rated prospect than Tavondre Sweat. Not the case. Lance Erline has his own scores for his and his own methodology uh, and his own reasoning behind it too, which what I kind of like. He's got Jonathan Brooks as his third best prospect coming out for Texas, which is interesting because every draft analyst that I've seen has Jay Brooks as the top running back still, even after injury. CJ, have you seen anything different of anybody's big? No, it, I don't want to say it's a consensus feeling around the draft uh, community, but you know, for, for my money's worth, I haven't seen many guys that have uh, other running backs above Jonathan Brooks, which is a testament to him and the work that he put on the field, even after an ACL injury. Yeah, so basically, you know, when he's got, you know, basically Jay Brooks and JT Sanders almost graded out as, you know, very similar in their grade. So it's it's really interesting. I think, um, you know, for for all these guys, you're looking at guys who have basically going to be drafted in the top 50 first, second round grades. And then, then he gets to A.D. Mitchell. And, you know, maybe he's not impressed with the Texas wide receivers because he's got Xavier Worthy a little low. Matt Miller loves Xavier Worthy, as you talked about yesterday, C.J. He's got him actually in the first round of his mock draft, A.D. Mitchell is the one that sneaks into the first round for most analysts in their mock drafts. When you start looking at him, I believe uh, Darren Jeremiah, his last mock draft, uh, he had A.D. Mitchell in the first round as well as Byron Murphy. So, I mean, right now there, and, and, and Jim Nagy for the, for the Senior Bowl, the executive for the Senior Bowl yesterday put out a thread 
uh, basically saying Tavondre Sweat shouldn't drop out of the first round, that he's that talented. So you got three, four guys right now that are getting first round love for some of the most respected and notable draft analysts in the game. Uh, that's that's really, really impressive, I mean, especially when you kind of go down uh, this list for uh, Lance Zerline and how basically how he has these guys ranked. Yeah, definitely. I was a little bit surprised at that Xavier Worthy rating right there. You know, we talked about his speed in the production lot, you know, speaks for itself for, from his time on uh, on campus here. But uh, I, I was a little bit surprised by that. You know, like you said, Matt Miller has him as, as the number 32 pick going to the Kansas City Chiefs. His speed is going to be his biggest strength. And I thought, you know, what he put on tape this year, the question marks about his hands were answered a little bit as well. Uh, I, I'm a bit surprised by that rating, but hey, that it makes more fodder for us. So I, I'm here for it. Hey, Matthew, yeah. can you scroll down just a bit? Let's look at the bottom of the list as we get down to who we just got there. Christian Jones, Ryan Watts, Jalen Ford, Keelan, and then we've got Jay Witt. So anything surprise you at uh, Z's, the, the bottom of the list, Rod? Um, somebody higher? Uh, yeah, I mean, he seems to be pushing down all the wide receivers, right? It seems like uh, that. That, that's a theme with Lanzerline here in his overall rankings that all the wide receivers seem to be pushed down. Most of those guys have higher grades. I, I assume Jay Witt, his biggest issue is going to be medical evaluations. Uh, when they, mm. they want to see all the injuries that he's had, he's had injury history. If he gets, you know, glowing, uh, you know, remarks during the medical evaluations and everybody sees him as a guy that that won't be an issue going forward. Um, I think that'll help Jay Witt. Also, the back of the draft isn't as loaded as it once was because a lot of the underclassmen are staying in school because of NIL. You have guys staying in school longer with the extra years of eligibility and the transfer portal, being able to transfer without a lot of limitation. So that's helping guys like Jay Witt because, you know, hopefully he's rising up some draft boards because they don't have that deep pool of talent in the later mm -hmm. rounds that they used to, you know, prior to the, the changing landscape of college football, if you will. Yeah. Hey, either one of you can take this or both. Who's going to be the guy that gets into the room with the coaches and the draft guys for the NFL teams and interviews and then goes out and works out in the likes and then surprises everybody and moves up the board. Who do you think might be the surprise guy for Texas and Indianapolis? The inter interview side of thing, I'll go with Jalen Ford. I think he's really got a good uh, mind between his ears there when it comes to football uh, intellect as well as what it takes to be a leader off the field. You know, every time that we were able to speak to him with player availabilities, he was surprising, uh, has a great mind on him, as I said. And, again, he just gets the game of football. He understands it uh, conceptually, schematically. Uh, everything that goes into the preparation side of things as well is, is right down his alley. I think he'll be a riser in, as a result of the, the uh, in-person interviews. Matthew, yeah, let's – oh, go ahead, Rod. I'm sorry. No, no, I just uh, – I agree with him 100%. In terms of a guy that – at the combine that could surprise, um, it's tough because most of these guys are expected to do really well at the combine. Uh, I'll say if Ryan Watts runs well – Nobody's really expecting Ryan Watts to run well, because it, it, it. And I don't. I don't know what he did at the uh, the shrine. I think he went to the uh, the Shrine game as a an, an All Star. I didn't hear much out of all there. If he runs well at his size, um, that would be surprising. And I think a team uh, he could end up, you know, rising up some draft boards or being a priority free agent uh, uh, for uh, you know for mm -hmm. a team that thinks, hey man, he's got. He's got all the raw tools it takes to be a safety at the highest level if he runs at really good speed because he's got great size, he's physical, and we know he can if, – if he doesn't have to cover wide receivers consistently, um, guys with great type-in speed, acceleration, and deceleration, uh, he's covering tight ends and covering running backs out of the backfield, then his coverage uh, skill becomes a strength, an asset, and not a liability. And I think, I, don't know, I think he's the guy that could, could gain a lot because I didn't even think, think he would get uh, invited to the combine. So obviously the NFL scouts like what they see and they want to see more of it. Yeah. Well, you got Dan Quinn over in Washington. He likes a big defensive back. So maybe he'll throw a right. flyer at Ryan Watts late in the draft. Uh, Patrick Smith at 701, Matthew. Uh, he talked about undersized defensive tackles. Now one guy is our highest perspective uh, draft pick. And we got another guy here where you're, don't know a lot about. And we saw this question earlier. 
CJ and I, and both said, you know what, that's a, a good question that Patrick Smith has. So Zach Swanson, is it what's he, Arizona or California? Where's Zach from? Out in that out west somewhere, right? Arizona. Uh, says, Arizona should be a beast by now. I liked his energy and upside coming out of high school. They want him to play defensive tackle. Now we had you know Sweat at 363 and Murphy pushing about 310 or so. So uh Zach, uh, what's the last we heard on him, CJ? Yeah, right now his biggest thing is he's just got to get bigger. You know, he, it's one of those things where some guys get into the college weight room and you see them skyrocket as a result of the change in nutrition, the change in uh, offseason approach. Right now for uh, Zach Swanson, it's all about adding that muscle mass and getting up to speed there. Uh, right now I think he entered the season actually around 270, 275 pounds. Entering the SEC, you'd like to see at least 25, 20 pounds added to that frame before he is able to be thrown into the fire with consist consistency, uh, this spring is going to be big for him. Because as we've talked about, he's at that three-tech spot, which has added some pieces with uh, with guys like Savea from Arizona out of the portal. Obviously, you talk about Alex January coming in. Where does he fit, mix and match? Vernon Broughton and Alfred Collins each kind of figure to be a three-tech as well. For Zach Swanson, it's all about carving out a, a niche role in this defensive line, and it's going to have to start with his weight and his his uh, his figure before he gets on the field, especially against a Texas offensive line that's going to be very, very dominant, I expect to see uh, in the spring. Yeah. Speaking of defensive linemen, um, Jay Wilson at 718 had a question for both of you about uh, sacks. So who do you think will be leading the team in sacks and interceptions? So he wants to go back uh, into the back uh, group of the team as well on the defense. Going with Ethan Burke with nine sacks, Derek Williams with four. What do you guys think about what Jay Wilson has to say? Mm, that's interesting because you got Trey Moore coming in, right? Trey Moore's a natural pass rusher. I mean, guy can can get off the edge. Guy's got BGO. He's a natural pass rusher off the edge. Uh, and I man, I love the way they use – Honestly, Anthony Hill, they should be moving him around. I wouldn't doubt in big games, man. He came up with big sacks. That's a guy they should be moving around more and blitzing. I think he's got a shot to be that guy. Um, but I like the Ethan Burke one. I'm playing, playing more devil's advocate. If I was a betting man right now, Ethan Burke and Trey Moore would probably be my two, the two best bets for me right now. In terms of the leading sacks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like Ethan Burke. I think that's a safe pick just because of the the, the snap volume that you'll see from him yes. will probably outweigh those of a Colin Simmons, uh, a Trey Moore early, though I do think he is going to be a big-time contributor for this team. Like you talk about, Rod, he just understands how to get to the quarterback. Some guys get it. Some guys don't. Trey Moore's game is all about getting to the quarterback, and he's done it with ease. Will Baron Sorrell make that step? Is pass rushing mm -hmm. really his strength? Mm -hmm. I think it's a question mark more so than it is something that he's got in the back of his bag right now. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with Burke. I think that his length and athleticism is just too much for a lot of offensive tackles. Uh, going to the interception question, I like Derek Williams. This is one I've kind of juggled with. I really like Terrence Brooks. Yeah, and I Ooh, think in that like field that. situation right now where Texas had him last year, you kind of get more opportunities for balls to be batted up in the air, kind of juggled around. There's a lot more space for a reading react kind of opportunity to come about for Terrence Brooks. I thought he's very sticky in coverage when tested last year. Obviously had the best numbers of any Texas defensive back when targeted last year. He's my sleeper pick, but I like I think Derek Williams is the safe favorite right there. Uh, yeah, I'll throw out another one. I, you know, I think Manny Muhammad's a natural ball hawk. He really is. He just, he plays the ball. He's a ball first kind of guy. He's sticky in coverage. Um, and he loves to play bump and run coverage and they're going to play a lot more of it. I'll, I'll throw him out there. I'll throw Manny. Cause I think he's, a, I think he's got some ball hawk in him. And if he gets, he gets tested early, which they might test him. They may come after him. He he, he likes to make plays on the ball. Even that hell, that sugar ball, he almost made a play on the ball. He was that close to it. He was that close to it. Yeah. Hey, UT boy at seven twenty four. Thanks, UT boy. We appreciate the shout outs as always. He's uh, talking about Ant Hill, I believe. Says he's a dog. Uh, he Rod, you love, you love positionless football. So yep. what is this kid? Is he? going to end up in that traditional linebacker role is it going to be a guy like Micah Parsons who can kind of move up and play kind of a hybrid edge linebacker what do you see and Hill's position and if we have more numbers at the edge position can 
the coaches afford or would they be more inclined to put him back more in that traditional uh, drop back linebacker role as well? Or do they want to play up front? Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I, I think he's a guy that should move around. I would I would move him around the front a little bit. I think traditionally he's going to be your off-ball linebacker, probably your, if you want to go traditional old school, I guess your, your wheel linebacker. Um, but I, I think he's a guy you should move around. Um, he's got that kind of ability. I would put him on the edge sometimes. He, I mean, even Sark said he was one of the top two best pass rushers. And he, he, he was him and Byron Murphy when he was asked, who are your best pass rushers? Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy, because he, he naturally knows. He's naturally got a great bend off the edge. Uh, he's, he's, he's got great instincts um, getting after the quarterback. And he's got great speed. That just got natural foot speed too. Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily make it easy on offenses to know where he is and zero in on him. And the only way you're going to be able to move him around though is you need another linebacker to stabilize the linebacking core. Otherwise, you're going to have to keep him at off ball linebacker a lot more. If, you, if one of those other guys steps up, like a Benda, you know, like a Leon LaFau, if they mm-hmm. get another linebacker in there, then that allows them to be a lot more fluid with the way they use Anthony Hill. If they don't have a linebacker there to stabilize it, you can't just be moving that guy around. I mean, he's got to be <laughs> kind of your stabilizing force there. So that's a big part of his finding depth around him so that you can get creative with him. Yeah, Rod, yeah. I'm really glad you brought up that kind of topic about the linebacker spot because it makes a lot of sense for Anthony Hill to be used creatively with where he is in this dip, this defense. But if the guy, his counterpart next to him doesn't have that wherewithal not only in the run game but in the passing game as well like a Jalen Ford did now you're at a disadvantage defensively because you've taken out the biggest athlete on your team and you've left that middle of your defense kind of vulnerable with who's remaining there Uh, at the state of the program earlier today with Bobby and Jerry we we talked about the most important Longhorns for the 2024 season to see that's you know kind of 10 win mark met this fall Leongo LaFowle was number four on my list and honestly looking back you probably should have been a little bit higher because you talk about David Benda and you talk about Kendrick Blackshear and what their strengths are as linebackers, it's all about coming forward. Yep. And when you talk about what Jalen Ford did so well, well, it was dropping back in the pass, reading uh, route concepts, reading the eyes of a quarterback, getting hands on the passes and intercepting uh, balls whenever he had the opportunity to. That was his biggest strength as a linebacker. And if you take that away from the middle of the defense, it, it, it kind of blurries up what you are going to be allowed to use Anthony Hill as, as yeah. a result of not having that guy in that linebacking room who can drop into coverage. So I think Leon Glafau is kind of that bridge right there in the running game and in the passing game that will allow Anthony Hill to really, really play freely and be used freely, which is a whole nother conversation. Uh, but I, I really think he'll be able to step up at 6'1", 230 already. I mean, mm-hmm. he's physically ready to play in the SEC. It's all about will he be ready for the speed of the game, which is something that the Texas staff is still working to get him up to speed. Spring ball is going to be huge for him. Good stuff. Yeah. Hey, Damon Graham just came through with a uh, big super chat. i tell you what, I'm going to read it cold here. I didn't even hey. see that. It just came up immediately, but thank you, Damon. We really appreciate that. Now, Coach John Irwin. He's a member of the On Texas football family. He talked about pocket presence and gap escape decisions regarding Quinn wow. Ewers. Would love to hear you guys talk about this more. I believe it's what made Colt McCoy so effective. So let's digest this. You guys have already done that. So gap escape decisions regarding Quinn. So what's uh, Coach Irwin talking about there, Rod? What do we What do we think? Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, CJ and I were actually talking about something along these lines in talking ball. Uh, we were talking about Quinn Ewers and his development. You know, NFL scouts want to see him get deeper into his progressions. They want to see him do it with, you know, with 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 good footwork, with e- efficient, you know, mechanics. And he really doesn't get deeper into his progressions. One, you know, one, two, three. He this season, we've seen him now go from the first progression. And I think he's scrambling more, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and, and and sometimes he takes the check down. Um, but the NFL scouts want to see him go from one, two, three to the check down. And I think what he did this past season was add the scrambling to his game. Sark talks about almost mocking quarterbacks that run. I mean, he talks about all the time that we don't major in quarterback run game. That's not what we do. But I do think he encouraged his quarterback. Hey, if they're going to give you green grass, you got to take it. Now, 
Quinn's got to become a more responsible runner overall. I think we agree with that. Can't be trying to run over linebackers and stuff like that. That's not smart. You're going to be a franchise quarterback in the NFL. You know, you got to take care of yourself. So, you know, I, I, I like the fact that he's scrambling more, showing his athleticism. I think that's why, you know, he kind of slimmed down. And I think that was part of the plan. At least it, it, it seemed like that was part of his plan. Whether it was part of Sark's plan or not, it was part of Quinn's plan. And I, I'm with you. I, it's interesting. I think some quarterbacks just have those instincts. I don't think Quinn does. I think Quinn's just taking green grass when it's there. And they, they're they mm. playing man-to-man. They're turning their back on him. And he's saying, you know what? You're going to give me eight yards, but I'm just going to take them eight yards. Cole McCoy was different. And Cole McCoy led Texas in rushing in one mm. year. I mean, it, Cole McCoy was really athletic, and I agree he just seemed to have a very keen sense and eye, his pocket presence, his awareness in the pocket about when to escape. I think also I think that was part of the, the chemistry he had with Quan and with Jordan Shipley, too. You know what I mean? Those were his guys, and he knew, like, man, them guys ain't got it. I'm definitely about to duck out of here. Uh, remember <laughs> Sam? Sam was one of the most scramble-happy quarterbacks yeah. in all of college football, right? And I think Sam even passed that down in Casey Thompson. Remember, Hudson Card could scramble. He was a Hudson Card was a great athlete, but in Sark's system, I think Sark discourages that initially. He's like, yeah. he's like he's telling his quarterbacks, "I want you to run to throw. I don't want you to be just running to escape the pocket and scramble. I want you to run the buy your time, buy yourself time to extend the play to throw." And I think that's what uh, he was telling his quarterbacks. Hudson Card took that to heart. Casey Thompson did not. Casey Thompson was like, man, if they give me green grass, I'm going to take it. And actually, mm-hmm. that was the right approach at the time because Texas was still building the offensive line, and they did not have a, a high-level O-line that could protect them and give them time. That's what Sam learned. Sam was like, no, 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 I got to keep chains moving. All right, if I got time, I got yeah. time. But if I don't, I'll keep the chains moving, and I will convert, convert, convert. That's what Bam Bam Sam learned behind his O-line, which is why he scrambled a lot. So honestly, I think it's, it's, it's a quarterback-to-quarterback thing. I don't think Quinn has it naturally, but I do think now he's smart enough to take the green grass when they give it to him. Ultimately, scouts don't want to see that either. Scouts want to see him get deep into his progressions as a quarterback and get to that third read and still deliver the ball on the money, on time, you know, you know, throwing guys open and he, he doing the things that he usually does when he's got a, a first, w- first window, first read throw when he's, when guys are schemed open, they want to see that those same mechanics, that same footwork when he gets to the third progression, third read in the progression. And he hasn't really done that consistently. It's in him, Of course it is. And I think you'll see more of it this year with all those great wide receivers. Boom, yeah. boom, boom. Yeah. And I appreciate Sam for the hero ball because that was what the coach Herman needed from him to, to get those ends. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not what Sarkeesian does at all. No. So hey, uh Regis Wilson at 727, Matthew was asked has a question for CJ. And it's a, an interesting one. And Rod, you can weigh in as well. And I don't know, uh he's just asking for a number here, CJ. You want to throw out an estimate? What do you think about uh the portal window, once we finish the spring, how many Longhorns do you think might leave the program? I'd say probably four or five departing. I don't think it would be anything crazy. But Texas actually was – they fared very well following the four, the first portal window earlier in the season. You know, there wasn't as many departures as I think many expected. Maybe Jaron Thompson and Trill Carter caught people by surprise a little bit. Uh, aside from that, Texas did not see departures from really anybody that was – Uh, expected to contribute or had contributed so far while wearing the burnt orange and white right now. I think you'll probably see four guys depart again. Texas went out and added, you know, a big piece at seemingly each position on the field. You know, they, they, they didn't shy away from adding talent to any quarter or any room uh, on the field aside from maybe running back and quarterback. So uh, if that rubs some, some folks the wrong way, if some people didn't like the idea of, uh, walking in spring ball with a little bit more t- uh, talent in the room and competition. I understand, but uh, I'm looking at four or five guys right now that will probably uh, enter their name in the portal and, 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 and move on. Rod, that seemed like a reasonable number to you. Four or five. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think at one point, you know, where you're stockpiling all this talent, you know, at one point you would think if, you know, guys don't don't see a pathway to play. They're going to leave. You saw that with the defensive backfield, right? This past uh, transfer portal um, opening, you saw that with uh, wide receiver a little bit. So I think, you know, I hate to throw it at one position, but I think maybe 
offensive line. If if the guys don't see themselves in that rotation, you got so much talent there uh, that you've stockpiled. That may be a position you see some attrition. But, yeah, I don't see too many. I mean, I think it's a credit to Sark and the culture that, you know, you don't see a lot of guys leaving because they're unhappy. You know, guys are leaving because they can't play because they don't mm-hmm. see a path to play. <laughs> That's really the reason people uh, are guys are leaving. Yeah, that's it. There's so much talent. Sense, talking too, about right? the portal guys, the recruiting yeah. classes that have come in. You know, yeah, this offensive line. There hasn't been a single departure. You it, know, it, really it, since Coach Flood was here. You know that he's recruited. Yeah, so it's, it's amazing. It's been that impressive. And right now, that line is pretty long. Whenever you're talking about the same offensive line returning, uh, or I guess nine out of ten returning for the second straight year, that some folks that aren't seeing the field right away, they might get a little upset by that, and they want might want to continue their football playing career, uh, even if that means moving on from Texas. Yep. At 7.06, Matthew, El Conquistador brought up the name Chris Gilbert. Now, I don't know if this was released by the school yet, but news came out today that Chris Gilbert, who used to be the head of our high school you know, relations that uh, Jamal Fenner has taken over, took over the job for Chris over the last year, mm-hmm. but Gilbert coming back to be a special assistant for Sarkeesian. Uh, he was a very successful head coach at uh, Lancaster. Knows everybody. He's just this guy that knows has all the connections. What will Chris Gilbert's return to the program mean for Texas? Well, it, um, it means that they're going to keep that foothold strong in DFW. That's what that, that, right? that's what that means. You know, you talk about the success <laughs> Texas has had there when it comes to uh, a DJ Campbell, the folks at uh, Duncanville. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Colin Samuel. Uh, sorry, the Colin Simmons, the Alex Januarys, the John Tate Cooks, the Anthony Hills, those five-star caliber players coming out of DFW, uh, it's going to help Texas a lot there. Chris Gilbert's highly respected in that area as uh, a legend of a coach from his time at Lancaster, obviously spent time with Texas before taking an on-field role with North Texas. Uh, this two years ago, I believe it was right around the, the beginning of 2022. Uh, but, but man, he is going to shore up recruiting again in that area. And beyond, you know, he has a very likable personality. He's a guy that, you know, has has been through it all. He's seen it all uh, and has a lot of skin on the wall when it comes to uh, recruiting and, and being at this level. Texas is, is going to be fortunate enough to get him back on campus. Uh, of course, this was recruited by Football Scoop and Zach Barnett. So, uh, you know, they, they do a great job there. Uh, yep. If that does come true and the school does announce it, it would be a big addition for the the assistant general manager spot in this Texas recruiting department, which has kind of taken some some new turns since uh, his last time here with the general manager role opening up. I will say this football scoop. They did update their story um, and they said update sources say Gilbert's title will be special assistant to mm. head coach Steve Sarkeesian. Yeah. So I, I they they did say they said initially they did say his assistant general manager though is still in the article. But then they do say update. So I do wonder if, if it's going to be one or the other. I mean, so it could be one or the other. Either way, he's coming back. And I agree with everything CJ says. He's around the money. It's all about DFW, man. That yep. DFW area. Uh, except only only Atlanta is the only metro area producing NFL draftable talent at a higher rate than DFW. You got you gotta have it, you gotta have multiple coaches with ties to that area and he's yeah he's a made man he's a made man in the dfw you get a guy like that every every door opens he knows every coach he knows you know he if he don't know the coach he knows somebody that knows that coach <laughs> yeah he, he spent the last year coaching uh on the defensive side up at north texas and uh probably said you know what enough of that stuff i'll go back to austin where i had some success and would love working with those guys again Russell Henkel has a question for us. Pretty broad, but a nice one. He says, what area of the game do y'all want to see Coach Sarkeesian develop most as a head coach this season? So pretty broad. I mean, the the game's a big thing, right? But what would you like to see uh, Coach Sark uh, accomplish in 2024? I think the low-hanging fruit's going to be red zone offense and execution, but I think more of that goes to what the players on the field uh, kind of follow through with their execution of the play calls, the schemes, the blocking up front, Quinn Ewers, as we talked about, learning a fastball, et cetera, et cetera. For me, Steve Sarkeesian's biggest growth needs to come into when to be aggressive, uh, when to take the points, when to continue going for, him, going for it on fourth downs. Uh, that's kind of one of the more interesting parts of the game to me 
uh, with Steve Sarkeesian. You can add time management to that, but I think all coaches, you know, are, are looking at time management as a way that they can improve. Uh, you know, that that ending of the Oklahoma game, they they stormed down the field. They didn't take off as much time as I thought they could have, ending up leading a, a little bit too much time for Dylan Gabriel to, to become heroic. But to me, Sarkeesian, there were times last year, you look at the BYU game at home and obviously the Houston game on the road. Texas could have blown out BYU by probably 40 or 50. You know, it, it was just a dominant game. They went for it twice on the goal line. And I understand that, you know, it's BYU, Europe, probably 14, 15, whatever it was at the time. But when you get to the five-yard line and you don't score on two straight possessions there, that two or three possession lead instantly can be chopped down to one or two. And now you're looking back at, you know, we were dominating this game. What's happening? And it, it certainly happened against Houston when Texas had the opportunity to kick a field goal to go up uh, by another possession. They get stopped on the fake field goal attempt. And now all of a sudden it's a tied game after being up 21-21. You know, it's kind of that situational awareness of when to be aggressive and when not to be. I love when Sarkeesian goes forward on, on fourth down on the first possession. When Texas gets over to about the 30, uh, the 25 to 35 range, you're in the dead man's territory, especially on the first down, uh, possession of the game. Go for it. Be aggressive. By all means, you are basically going to punt the ball, and that's where it was going to end up anyways. I love that. But in terms of when it's time to take that extra possession lead, especially in the SEC, when the margins are thinner and the athletes are getting better, you need to be able to, to, to be spot on with those decisions and calls for me. Uh, I think that will be a big decision and growth factor for Steve Sarkeesian this fall. Yeah, I think it was and to add to CJ's uh, point because I I liked it. I thought it was astute. I, I'll say his feel of the game, his feel of the game sometimes a little bit off, um, and that goes kind of the situational awareness that my man CJ's talking about. Because you know last year I wanted to see him close out games better. I wanted to see him conquer the three high three down defense, right? <laughs> uh, something that was schematically uh, working really well to counter. Um, his offensive philosophy. He did that. He and, and and you know I think I went into detail about how he did that all throughout the season and how he had planned to do it. That was that was important. Help I me mean, face that damn defense like seven eight times last season. <laughs> so it, it was important to kind of learn how schematically to be able to you know to be able to neutralize it and to be able to expose it and to be ultimately to overcome it. Uh, the red zone thing, I agree with CJ, but I'm not sure if that has been a systemic issue. I, it could just be an outlier from last year. Strange outlier considering all the talent you have offensively. That's why it was just perplexing to have that much talent um, on the O-line, D-line, O-line, I'm excuse me, and on the uh, skill positions, quarterback, and not be able to punch it in in the, in the red zone. Um, I think ultimately this year I want to see him be a little bit more diverse offensively. I would like to see more variety offensively. I know he's got it in him. Um, you know, I want to see more two tailback sets, more 21 personnel. Um, I've been you know, barking up that tree for a long time, but I think that's it, it's important for your offense to have variety. He throws in a lot of 12. I, I applaud him for throwing in the big 11, the big 12 with the extra offensive linemen. That's really creative. Um, I would like him to break out. I've been talking about this, the, the 10 personnel package. He had to call it the red package at Alabama when he had four first round wide receivers at his disposal. Well, you got a really deep wide receiving core here. Why not every now and then blitz the opponent with a ton of speed with a four wide receiver package, uh, you know, take the tight end off the field, have Jaden blue out there and have kind of the fastest personnel grouping in the country, potentially, or the most explosive. Um, you know, that's something you can do. So I like variety in my, in, in the offenses. And I think Sark has the ability to do that. So I would, that's what I would challenge him to, to do this year. Use more of this talent you're stacking and you do that with more, you know, variety, more diverse diversity within the offense, then more guys get to contribute. Hey, you're a good wingman, Rod Babers, and you set me up perfectly because our man C.J. Vogel, look at him grinning up there. He knows he uh, put out one of the best <laughs> articles of the year in terms of Texas football today on the ontexasfootball.com website. I don't know, Matthew, if you have that little tiny graphic we put at the bottom of the screen to remind people to go to ontexasfootball.com, but uh, – it's a nice forum we've established here. We got a full page graphic now. Look at that. Nice. Join nice. the conversation on TexasFootball.com. Our man CJ Vogel, the kid wonder, 
created a really nice uh, in-depth article today about the incoming Texas receivers, along with uh, UT boys' wow. favorite, John Tay Cook, because that's pretty much who we have a book on, and looks at uh, their production in the past, how that might extrapolate to production in the future for Coach Sarkeesian. CJ, it was a very deep dive. I'll let you take a deep dive right here for us. Tell us what you found out. And then we may touch on that thing we talked about before the show, too, about what we can learn from Sark's experience in Alabama. But tell us what the story was about. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Yeah, I mean, with the topic, the hot topic of the offseason for Texas is uh, a lot of wide receivers left and then a lot of wide receivers joined. And so it's where do where does all the production come from? Who do uh, who, who, who are the main targets for Quinn Ewers? Who puts up the yards? Who scores the touchdowns right now? It's a big question mark, but you do have a lot of interesting, fun pieces right now to work with going into the spring. Uh, how will that starting lineup look uh, when you add a, a, a Ryan Wingo to go next to a Jonte Cook with Silas Bolden, who's coming in in the summer? Uh, it's a big question mark. And so I, I really wanted to dive through, you know, where these portal wide receivers plus Jonte lined up last year. Obviously, we don't have any other information on uh, Ryan Niblett, uh, DeAndre Moore, not necessarily a lot of information there. On, on numbers from last year. And obviously the freshmen, we don't have any idea uh, of, about where they stacked up in a college set or where Sarkeesian wants to line them up in the college set. So we'll see this spring. But right now it was all about, you know, getting an idea of where they might be lined up, what kind of uh, routes they might run. It, it was interesting because, uh, you know, you saw Isaiah Bond out of the slot almost 60% of his snaps at Alabama, uh, followed by Matthew Golden was in the slot 33 34% of the time. And then Silas Bolden, who's only about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, less than 20% of, of his snaps on offense were inside the slot. Wow. More times than not, more than 80%, him and John Tate Cook were on the outside as, as wide receivers when it came to pre-snap alignment uh, last year in college. That's interesting to me because it, it there's a lot of positionless opportunity here with these wide receivers. They share very similar body types, very similar skill sets, and more times than not, when you get the ball in their hands, they look very similar with the way that they are able to make defenders miss and, and create extra yards. Uh, another thing that stood out to me was Matthew Golden. Uh, his average distance of target was about three yards shorter than any of those three receivers I mentioned, Bond, Bolden, and Cook. So those guys are averaging distances of around 11 or 12 yards per attempt. Matthew Golden, only around eight. So Houston, despite throwing the ball very often, you could tell they did not like throwing the ball down the field, at least not when targeting Matthew Golden. He was used a lot in the underneath crossing routes, which kind of torched Texas a little bit, uh, and the quick screen passes. Uh, last year with Houston. So it'll be interesting to see what his route tree is going to look like when it comes to uh, being a Texas wide receiver. As we know, Rod, it is pretty intricate. You know, they, they like yeah. getting those guys down the field, running deep crossers. Uh, the Mills concept that we saw score against Alabama twice, uh, it, it, it's a little bit different than what the big concept was at Houston, which is more underneath. Uh, and then the yards after catch was all interesting to me. Uh, Matthew Golden led the way of the transfers at right under six yards uh, per catch after or per per yard after catch per reception. Uh, that was interesting. Obviously, I think you can anticipate uh, the quicker, shorter routes would have more opportunities for him to get up yeah. the field. But John Tate Cook in his uh, what is it, eight catches last year averaged almost eight yards after the catch. So encouraging there. He led the way there uh, in terms of those four wide receivers. But again, for Steve Sarkeesian and Chris Jackson specifically, the opportunities with these four guys, plus a Ryan Wingo and DeAndre Moore, it's it you can do a lot. I'm really interested to see how that shakes out because, uh, I mean, like I said, the, the the versatility is going to cause matchup nightmares for opposing defensive coordinators next year. And again, like you said, Rod, if you can kind of tilt the way that you use those per, those personnel groupings and schemes, I mean, it, you could be looking at almost a brand new package every week with this group of guys. That's awesome. Man, I'm reading the article yeah. right now. I got to go back and check it out. It's great. Good good <laughs> stuff, CJ. It is Thank fantastic. You. 
so CJ, what we talked about before the show, when he was at Alabama, he had three first rounder and Messi was almost a first rounder. So does that inform you when he has confidence in some really talented guys, does that affect the way that uh, his tight rotation, will it loosen up? Do you anticipate this year, even with Wingo added to the mix? You know, it's interesting because you look back at his 2019 year, and I won't use too much of 2020 because Waddle gets hurt, and then it really became a one-man show with Devontae Smith en route to his Heisman winning uh, season. But 2019 is interesting because you're looking at Jerry Judy, Devontae Smith, Henry Ruggs, John yeah. Mechie, who did not crack that rotation, and obviously Jalen Waddle as well. That's five wide receivers, four of them drafted in the first round, and another that was drafted, uh, John Mechie, in the second round by the Texans. So that is a – one of the deepest groups of wide receivers that we've seen in the, the, the last couple, uh, you know, probably decade or so in college football, uh, the way that they were used, I'm looking at the target share uh, among those groups. It was 108 for Jerry Judy, 88 for Devontae Smith, 55 for Henry Ruggs, and only 40 for Jalen Waddle, which is crazy to think about Jalen Waddle being fourth on that list. But when you have guys like Judy, Smith, and Ruggs, it makes sense. When you're looking at what Texas has right now, I'm not obviously saying that they're going to, uh, to to balance out and mirror what those Alabama wide receivers have, but you do have very similar skill set wide receivers there. You have your number one and you have your number two. Where do three, four, and five fall in? Those guys are more so bunched up together than your number one and number two. I right now look at Silas Bolden uh, and Matthew Golden kind of fighting with Ryan Wingo and DeAndre Moore for that next hmm. share of, of targets when it comes to behind uh, Jonte Cook and uh, Isaiah Bond. I think Isaiah Bond and Jonte Cook, Jonte obviously having been in this system for an extra season, gives him the edge over these newcomers just a little bit. Uh, but Silas Bolden, or sorry, Isaiah Bond being that number one wide receiver at Alabama, it gives me the, uh, you know, it, like the, the fireworks go off a little bit. I'm excited to see him in this offense with a quarterback who, you know, Quinn Ewers probably a little bit more, uh, accurate than what we saw Jalen Monroe at times last year. So uh, the way that Steve Sarkeesian can kind of create offense out of nowhere, not so necessarily just hucking it downfield because with uh, Xavier Worthy last year, we saw the quick passes, the slants, not so much, but the short screens and just the, the, you know, 10 or 12 yard comebacks that that was a way to get him the ball early and often to let him do what he does after the play or after the catch more so than just hucking it deep and pray that a connection is born. Hey, Rod, you talked about Coach Sarkeesian. One of the improvements you would like to see him make is his situational awareness during the games. And Kelly Hyden at 747 uh, brings up a, a good point. Now, this is one of the criticisms that coordinators get when they're head coaches as well. Can they concentrate on their job as a coordinator and the grand scheme of things as a head coach and keep track of timeouts and what's going on, what you know, yard and distance and the like? So Jody Camillus was uh, apparently a, a big part of that. Jeff Banks does that. Could that be an issue? Sark's not giving up the OC job, though. I mean, um, no. more of the responsibility gets on Banks to kind of – there's a moment towards the end of the TCU game when the, there was a penalty against Texas Christian and it converted it from about a fourth and seven, fourth and eight to a fourth and three. You can see Sark wants to go for it, but then you see Banks go to him and go, nah. Nah. <laughs> yeah, go back and watch that. It's, it's fun to see. So I, don't, I don't know if anything's going to change, Sark, or not, but just, just your I, I just thought that was an astute observation by the poster that, uh, yeah, when you're looking at your next play call, it's maybe hard to kind of keep your situational awareness up to date. No, no, it's, uh, it's a great point. And, that, that, and I like that term that CJ brought up. I, you know, I, his, this is a feel for the game thing. I think the, you know, the more, that Sark trusts his staff, like you just said, right? And trust, you know, the players and the way they can they execute. Um, I think that'll help his feel of the game. Late in the season, he learned, right? And it took him a while, but it took him longer than it needed to, that they were just a bad red zone team. Mm -hmm. I think he was stubborn about it, and I understand why he was stubborn. He's a coach, right? Coaches are problem solvers. He was just trying to solve the problem. I'm sure he was working, troubleshooting, different solutions. All right, you know what? Let's think players not plays let's you know let's try to mix it up let's go power let's go with the memory with the big humans package like he tried everything to improve in the red zone and ultimately even the last game of the season oh you could argue one of the reasons they lost versus washington red zone offense they weren't they weren't ever a good red zone offensive team the entire season and he he figured that out late and decided you know what let's get bird arvin in these points let's take them points and i think that was part of knowing your team, right? And 
the the humility at times to realize, damn it, we just can't. We're not going to figure it out. We have to play a different. And you got a good defense, right? You got to play a different style, and that style should have been maybe not as aggressive aggressive in taking the points, and which he did later on in the season. So I think it's just I think it's just reps. I think Sarko. I think the field of the game will improve. I trust that now with him because I've seen him evolve as a coach real time since he's been here at Texas. You know, I've watched him evolve in his decision-making. I watched it throughout the season. Um, so I trust that Sark's field of the game will improve. But you're right, that's a lot on the coach's plate. But the two coaches who were in the Super Bowl, they called their own plays. Um, you know, some I mean, Ryan Day just gave it up because Ryan Day, is he's got a different journey he's on, right? He's just got to beat Michigan at all costs by any means necessary. So he gave up the play-calling news, but he gave it up to a guy that – was a head coach and decided to take a demotion to be the offensive coordinator there, different mm-hmm. situation. So I think, you know, for Sark, he believes he's never going to give up play calling duties. That's not going to happen. Um, bringing in more and more uh, football minds that he trusts around him. Jeff Banks is his consigliere. He trusts uh, Jeff Banks, right? Um, you know, Joe DeCamillo is a 20 year veteran in the league, especially. So I'm sure he trusted him bringing in somebody you trust in those situations to be checks and balances. Cause as a coach, yeah, sometimes it's hard to see the entire picture, the whole macro, especially when you're so committed to one side of the ball as the play caller, that's, that's only natural. Uh, and maybe one day Sark will decide to give up play call. Maybe he'll trust, you know, a coach that much right now. I don't, I don't see it with him. I think he, yeah. I, I think he's way too much of a control freak about his offense. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right, Rod. But, hey, if these are the questions that we're going to have about Steve Sarkeesian as a head coach and still find a way to win, you know, 12 games a year, imagine what that ceiling is going to be like when he does figure it out and does master some of the question marks that kind of mm-hmm. surround him as a head coach because we've seen the growth and we've seen him tick off some of those boxes in which, you know, in year one we were sitting there thinking, you know what, I don't know if this is the guy that, we were promised. Yep. After year three, those questions or the, those boxes are being checked a little bit more. Uh, there's still a couple that need to be uh, addressed a little bit. But hey, if if you're going to sit there and pick pick apart, you know this guy every decision that he makes, and you're still finding a way to win a conference championship, make the final four, and be a, really a play away from making it to the national championship game. I, I'm just saying that that ceiling is going to be much higher whenever all those things get get ticked off, and th- that talent remains the same at Texas. Yeah, there's yeah. there's no doubt we're gonna pick apart every decision he makes. I mean, that's just what Texas football does. That's why he makes the big bucks, right? He's like a ten million dollar man, yeah, to deal with the stress of all the pressure that we're gonna put on him. But he, what I love about Sark is that you can tell in the offseason he has man in the mirror moments to fix mm-hmm. the big issues, right? The so yeah, there are small things we can point out, feel of the game, and we want to get better and have a more diverse offense, right? We're being very nitpicky, but we're talking about broad macro things that really affect. Uh, whether he's going to get the win or the loss, right? The first year it was, he was basically, Texas was a first half team. They they, they were great in the first half and they couldn't Mm -hmm. make adjustments in the second half. And they really weren't a great second half team at all. And that's why they were losing games, even though they would get big leads in games. Sark went man in the mirror moment and figured out how to turn this team into a team that could battle for four quarters. But remember in 2022, they couldn't close, right? They couldn't close one score games, the tight games in clutch time. That's when his team worked, but they started losing games in clutch time. So he got them from being a team that only played the first half to being a team that would play for four quarters, but they couldn't win it. They got to find a way to win it, to get over the hump. And then last season, we watched him do it, right? And even Sark talked about it. He said, I remember JT Sanders saying before the season, yeah, we know uh, that the we got a reputation for a team that can't close. We know that. That's, all right. That's something we've been working on. Sark talked about it. That's why he plays so many guys, even when it's frustrating for us. He said, no, nah, we got to rotate more guys because we got to be we got to be fresher in the fourth quarter. We got to be fresher down the stretch so we can close out some of these games. Right? He talked about that. He talked about being more aggressive late in games he talked about how that was on him saying now nah, we got to be more aggressive to try to close out these games and that that emphasis right as a coach you get what you emphasize that emphasis had this team closing out games winning games in clutch times in multiple ways big catches mm-hmm. by ad mitchell goal line stands by the defense right uh you know boss hogging the football against alabama on the road to choking them out with the running game they were able to close out games in a mo and a multitude of different and different different ways because Sark emphasized we got to close. We got to be a team that closes out in clutch time. We got to be clutch guys. And they developed the clutch gene. 
Sark did it. He yeah. tweaked everything in the offseason. He tweaked. He even talked about the practices, making them more intense, making them build to a crescendo, right? Like a fourth quarter instead of, oh, okay, we got this period, we got that period. Now you got to make them hyper toward the end. So the guys get used to building toward that crescendo of the fourth quarter. It's like, no, 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 fourth quarter, baby. Now it's time to give everything we got. All right. All it takes is all we got. We got to give, we get, leave everything on the field. And he did that as a coach. He, he really did change his methodology to make sure that they were a better fourth quarter team and they could close it out. So mm -hmm. I trust Sark to take care of the big macro issues. Coaches are problem solvers. Go solve the big problems. And sometimes to do that, you got to fix the small ones. But yeah, I think Sark, he sees the big picture and that's yeah. what he's focused on. We're focused on the small things because, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we do. We're going to criticize the little small things, but he's focused on the big picture. I like that about it. Yeah. Great points, Rod. The, the talent has improved, but Sarkeesian is a better coach now than when he first got here. I think he needed to get no back doubt. to practice. He's got confidence. He has trust in his players, trust in his coaches, trust in Burt Auburn. So that was a big piece last yeah. year too. Uh, we have a nice super chat from Justin Yarbrough and Rod. I'm sorry, man. I hope you have a swig of water there or something. I know you've been talking a bit, but uh, Justin says you're not done yet. We've got about 10 minutes left in the show. My so, man. Rod, you're going to go back to your Mac Brown days. And Mac was a Love great it. recruiter. Yeah. Coach February, they called him. I know you hated that nickname, but uh, that's what they called him. How similar is the roster makeup now compared to the 2000s and with uh, Sark recruiting nationally more so than Mac did? Can they? Now get it to that talent level or more well-rounded. How would you compare the uh, teams you were on and Mac's great recruiting successes to what we're seeing today? Uh, yeah, I think for Mac, you know, Mac, he ruled the Iron Throne of the state of Texas, right? So nobody will ever do that again. Um, he got the best athletes in the state of Texas. Everybody else pretty much got his leftovers. He would get in some recruiting battles with AM, but that was about it, man. Mac dominated the state and he did it for, for probably about 10 years because the sales pitch was, we're the best football program in the state with the best facilities. We win the most games and we send all our guys. We send the most players to the NFL. And honestly, Texas checked all those boxes. And so you really, if you're a great player in the state of Texas, there really was only one place to go unless you grew up in Aggie or you wanted to be an Aggie. Mac dominated the recruiting scene like that. And when Texas football fell off, Mac couldn't, that, that sales pitch didn't work anymore. Right. That's mm -hmm. You couldn't say you were winning more games because you weren't. You couldn't say you were sending guys to the league as much because you weren't as much. You can't say you were the best football program in the States and you didn't have the best facilities anymore either in the state. Although that sales pitch, it wasn't true. And that was part of the uh, I think, you know, kind of the end, the beginning of the end. Right. For for Mac Brown, Texas football. But when Mac started stacking classes, think about it. I came in in 99. We we're the number one class. He didn't win his national title until. 2005 so you're talking about six years later until he wins the national title he has to stack that many classes now mm -hmm. sark has the luxury he has the benefit of nil which should expedite everything right he's got the transfer portal so you shouldn't have to rebuild a position necessarily through traditional recruiting. You can use a transfer report to supplement and then have a short-term and a long-term vision for the roster. So it, it, it theoretically shouldn't take Sark as long as it took Mac. And Sark is stacking the classes the same way. But theoretically, and, and Sark is ahead of schedule, right? If Sark is the man, it shouldn't take him as long as it took Mac. It took Mac six years to end up winning it all. We, hell, we, we could have played for a national title in 2000. One, we lost the Big 12 title to, uh, you know, to Colorado. But, hell, man, if we had won that game, we're playing for a national title. That would have been max, what, in my 98, 99, that was fourth, uh, like fourth year, something like that, going on his fourth year, right? So, you know, that's that's the timeline, I think, right? Sark's already playing for a national title. That's his third year, so he's ahead of schedule. Um, Mac Brown, I think, stacking classes the way he did – you know, it, it, he couldn't beat Oklahoma. The Oklahoma thing, I think, also for Mac was think about how big that was. That you know, Bob Stoops comes in and wins a national title in his second year. Uh, that changed everything for Mac because they put way more pressure on Mac to to win not only to win big and win a lot of games, but you got to win a national title now. And I I think Mac was already thinking about winning a national title, but then there was a ton of pressure to do it. And honestly, I think it brought out the best in Mac. I I really do. Um, so I think Sark's he's stacking the classes. He's he's getting it just like Mac, he's uh emphasizing great quarterback, right? Mac 
recruited a lot of celebrity quarterbacks, five-star quarterbacks, Vince Young, your Chris Sims. Uh, hell, say what you want about Chance Mock. Chance Mock was a highly rated quarterback, a five-star. He recruited the big-time elite quarterbacks. Sark's doing that, too. It is a very – it seems like a very similar ascent. I'll say that. And and he's good with relationships, right? Everybody likes Sark. And everybody liked Mac. Boosters and the donors like Mac. You know, they it, that that matters in the state of Texas. Love to Texas high school football coaches. That matters. That's one of the first people Mac thanked when they won the national title because he understood mm-hmm. what it meant. Sark understands what it means. Look at all these coaches. We just talked about Chris Gilbert. He's bringing in some of these coaches with those ties. He understands it. So I, I just, you know, I, there are some similarities. There's no question about it. And the Holy Trinity, right, behind the scenes, it was, you know, the, the lost dodge back in the day with Mac Brown. It seemed like everything was aligned. The BB's in the box. And now you got, you know, Jay Hartzell and Kevin mm-hmm. Eltife and, and CDC. And it seems like there's alignment behind uh, Sark, too, that's supporting him. And that is something, yeah, we got to admit, even Tom Herman didn't have that. Charlie Strong didn't have that. Now you got that. That's a force, too. The BB's in the box. Yeah. Hey, Justin Yarbrough, thank you so much for that super chat. We've got about five minutes left in the show, and we're going to try to keep it to about an hour. We like the quicker pace here. I think that uh, makes people want to watch us uh, in the morning and the like. Uh, football Junkies had a few comments here. Let's kind of maybe wrap things up with uh, Football Junkie at 8.04, which will kind of uh, – Help me segue into a little bit of a broader question. Excited to see the new safety from Clemson, also more from UTSA. And then he talks about Ann Hill. But the, let's talk about Makuba, the safety. The defensive backfield is what I want to end this thing on. I think that was generally the, the concept was if we were able to fix our defensive uh, secondary problems last year, we could have done a little bit better. Yeah. Um, what, what do we see there, Rod? You're the expert in the secondary. Is that a key, and do you think we've taken the uh, personnel moves to, to fix it? I was thinking about this because I remember – I think I was. I think we were in a very similar position when I played in uh, early 2000, right? I, my first year was starting was 2000, um, and we still had a Casey Hampton and a Sean Rogers on the defensive line. Best D-tackle duo in college football at the time. Hell, it still may be considered, I think, the greatest D-tackle duo in Texas – in Texas football history, but Byron Murphy and Tavondre Sweat certainly might have something to say about that. Um, but when they let, we were, I mean, we were a top 10 defense. And I think most of it was because we were constructed with those two, you know, war daddies in the middle. And when they left, I, you know, I think we were concerned that, man, I mean, how much of a force was Casey Hampton and Sean Rogers? I mean, Casey Hampton led the team in tackles, guys, from the D tackle position. I mean, that's how productive he was. Uh, one one that drafted in the first round, one in the second round, very similar to Murphy and Sweat. And for those who are concerned that the defense uh, may regress as a result of losing those guys, my experience, like I said, when we lost, I just kind of go back to my own uh, situation. When we lost a, a D-tackle duo that was of that caliber, there wasn't the regression I thought it was. The defense just changed in terms mm. of its strength and mm. what it was and basically how uh, we game plan for teams because our basically our strength went from being in the front seven to being in the back seven, right? We had, you know, Quentin Jammer and myself at corner. We had, you know, a young Nathan Vasher. We had a young Derek Johnson after we recruited him, bringing him up at the linebacker's position, right? We had started rec- – Corey Redding had come in in 99, and Corey Redding was off the edge, and that was – he was the number one – you know, defensive player when he was recruited. So all of those those classes that Max started stacking, you know, they started playing early. So our, really, we became a defense that was built from the from the the back, right, from the back end and the back seven. And now became our strength. Our strength was coverage, right? Our we could cover. Our linebackers could run. We had those Texas City guys at linebacker who were great athletes, Eric Rawls and Tyrone Jones. We were so we were we were still a great defense. We just weren't necessarily constructed from the inside out. We were constructed from the outside in. And the hope is that this group, those guys in the secondary are ready to take the leap that we took. When we became one of the best secondaries in the country, then we were a top 10 defense because we could cover 
straight up man to man. And then Carl Bull Reese would basically use the numbers advantage he gained in us playing man to man to go blitz the hell out of the opposing quarterback. That's how they applied the pressure. We didn't have to do that when we had Casey Upton and Sean Rogers. So mm-hmm. it was just a different style of defense. And I hope that this group with Terrence Brooks and Malik Muhammad and Derek Williams, Makuba coming in now, right? A guy who's played a lot of high level football, Jade Barron coming back. This secondary mm-hmm. should be a strength. They were a liability. You could argue that the secondary is the only level of the defense. Hell, man, the secondary may be the only level of and phase of the game and the only position group that really hasn't improved a lot since Sark and PK and Jeff Banks got here and Kyle Flood got here, right? Offensive line's gotten much better. Quarterback position, wide receiver, running back, uh, D-line, linebackers. You go look at all, you're like, man, every position's gotten better. You go, what about the DBs? You're like, uh, well, there, I, yeah. That's a, that's an interesting point. That's, that's yeah. an interesting talking point, Rod, because right. I think you're right. I think you're right. You could see, I mean, Texas is going to have a first round, second round pick at, seemingly every single position after this next season when you count quarterback as well. Uh, but that's an interesting point. You know, when it, when is that back end of the group or of that defense going to catch up? I think that's a really good point. Yeah. A lot of good points tonight made by the commenters, by you guys. We really appreciate it. This is a Wednesday night live stream. Again, I'm Ray with CJ and Rod. Hey, I've got some conflicts the next couple of weeks, so I won't be joining you guys on Wednesdays, but hopefully ah. I'll be back. Hopefully Bobby will let me come back. You never know. But, hey, thanks to a lot of the familiar names over here. you got UT Boy, Todd Lacey. Todd, you know, Mrs. Hey. Lacey, is she there watching Rod? My we people. Like to, we My we people. like to get an update on everybody. we got football junkie. John Haney has made some good points in the uh, chat as well. We're just very grateful for your kindness and for your comments there. Kelly Hyden, you had a – a yes, good sir. comment. There are, there are multiple ones, but we're very grateful for everybody joining us here on the uh, Wednesday night live stream. Again, Ray, CJ, Rod, we thank you so much. And until the next time, there's Todd. He says, yes, Mrs. Lacey's watching and she loves the Rod Babers. All right, everybody. That's it for tonight. Thanks and welcome. Take care. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.